Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. In 1982, the Israeli army leveled a siege on the capital of an Arab land, Beirut. They were poised on the southern edge of Beirut, and Palestinian fighters ran raids against their front lines and lobbed mortars in their rear areas. The Israel Defense Forces pounded back at the city with artillery, tank forays, and airstrikes. And the United States was caught in the middle. The Arab world blamed us as Israel's great ally and financial supporter for all of Israel's deeds and looked to us to end the fighting in a responsible way. The Lebanese government particularly relied on us to save them from outside predators and to help them restore Lebanese central authority over their country. In effect, every side wanted to squeeze the system for its own purposes, regardless of the cost to Lebanon. Jordan wanted an Israeli settlements freeze. Israel wanted U.S. assistance stepped up. Lebanon grew fearful of renewed Syrian dominance as massive Soviet military resupply flowed to Syria. And warring militias battled each other beyond the control of the weak Lebanese central authority. Ha! Huh, it was a mess. In August 1982, America participated in sending a multinational peacekeeping force to Beirut. As hostilities increased considerably, additional help was required. So, in September 1983, Congress authorized the deployment of Marines for an additional 18 months. One month later, tragedy struck. Early in the morning on October 23rd, a truck carrying high explosives rammed through the perimeter of the Marine compound in Beirut and crashed into the large cement building where our Marines were sleeping. America lost 241 men in what would be the single worst disaster of the Reagan administration. That same day, the French unit lost 58 men to a suicide squad attack. That evening, the president delivered a brief message to the press. I'm not going to take any questions this morning because we are going right into meetings on the events that have taken place on this tragic weekend. But I would like to make this statement. I know there are no words that can express our sorrow and grief over the loss of those splendid young men and the injury to so many others. I know there are no words also that can ease the burden of grief for the families of those young men. Likewise, there are no words to properly express our outrage, and I think the outrage of all Americans, at the despicable act, following as it does on the one perpetrated several months ago in the spring that took the lives of scores of people at our embassy in that same city in Beirut. But I think we should all recognize that these deeds make so evident the bestial nature of those who would assume power if they could have their way and drive us out of that area, that we must be more determined than ever 
that they cannot take over that vital and strategic area of the Earth, or for that matter, any other part of the Earth. Thank you. In his autobiography, the president recorded his thoughts after his national security advisor, Bud McFarlane, briefed him on the tragedy. He said a suicide bomber had just driven a truckload of dynamite past our sentries and smashed into our marine barracks at the Beirut airport, killing at least a hundred members of the special international peacekeeping force that we and three other countries had sent to Lebanon. At 6.30 a.m., we left for Washington for what would become a day of National Security Council meetings in the White House basement situation room to discuss the bombings. As the day passed, the news from Beirut became even more sickening. Rescue workers working their way through the rubble found more bodies, and some of the critically injured Marines died, and the full magnitude of the catastrophe became apparent. In all, 241 Marines had died as they slept, resting from the duties of trying to keep peace in Lebanon. Two miles away and two minutes after the blast at the airport, 58 French soldiers, other members of the multinational force, had been killed by a second car bomb. The evidence pointed to both suicide vehicles having been driven by radical Shiite fundamentalists who were bent on the pursuit of martyrdom, a group whose leaders promised instant entry to paradise for killing an enemy. Nancy and I were made almost speechless by the magnitude of the loss but I had to go on with my schedule for the day. I'll never forget how difficult it was. But that wasn't the only thing happening in the world at the time. We'd been watching events on Grenada closely for several days. In a bloody coup the previous week, Grenada's Prime Minister, Maurice Bishop, a Marxist protege of Fidel Castro, who had invited Cuban workers to his country to build a suspiciously huge new airport, had been executed by leftists who were even more radically committed to Marxism than he was. The leaders of Grenada's island neighbors, Jamaica, Barbados, St. Vincent's, St. Lucia, Dominica, and Antigua, told us they were worried by what appeared to be a large Cuban-sponsored military buildup on Grenada, vastly disproportionate to its needs. Now that these even more radical Marxists were in charge on Grenada, they had launched a murderous reign of terror against their enemies, and unless they were stopped, the Caribbean leaders said, it was only a matter of time before the Grenadians and Castro moved on their countries. There were 800 American medical students on Grenada, all of them potential hostages. Under these circumstances, there was only one answer I could give to these countries that asked our help. I asked McFarlane how long the Pentagon thought it would need to plan and prepare a rescue mission on Grenada. He said the Joint Chiefs of Staff believed it could be done in 48 hours. I said, do it. We decided not to inform anyone in advance about the rescue mission in order to reduce the possibilities of a leak that would harm the hostages. Frankly, there was another reason I wanted secrecy over the operation, what I call the post-Vietnam syndrome the resistance of many in Congress to using military force abroad for any reason because of our nation's experience in Vietnam. No rational person ever wants to unleash military force, but I believe there are situations when it is necessary for the United States to do so, no more so than when the defense of freedom and democracy is involved or the lives and liberty of our citizens are at stake. 
I understood what Vietnam had meant for the country, but I believe the United States couldn't remain spooked forever by this experience to the point it refused to stand up and defend its legitimate national security interests. I suspected that if we told the leaders of Congress about the operation on Grenada, even under terms of strictest confidentiality, there would be some who would leak it to the press, together with the prediction Grenada was going to become another Vietnam. Sure, someone would say, it's starting small, but once you make that first commitment, Grenada's going to become another Vietnam. Well, that wasn't true. And that's one reason why the rescue operation on Grenada was conducted in total secrecy. We didn't ask anybody. We just did it. In the second part of this podcast, we'll hear the president's historic address to the nation on these two highly sensitive subjects. We'll be right back. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. Four days after the bombing, the president spoke to the nation from the Oval Office, not only to inform them of the events that had occurred, but to explain why we were in Lebanon and why the rescue mission in Grenada was essential. He begins with Lebanon. Let's listen. My fellow Americans, some two months ago, we were shocked by the brutal massacre of 269 men, women, and children, more than 60 other Americans, in the shooting down of a Korean airliner. Now, in these past several days, violence has erupted again in Lebanon and Grenada. In Lebanon, we have some 1,600 Marines, part of a multinational force that's trying to help the people of Lebanon restore order and stability to that troubled land. Our Marines are assigned to the south of the city of Beirut, near the only airport operating in Lebanon. Just a mile or so to the north is the Italian contingent, and not far from them, the French and a company of British soldiers. This past Sunday, at 22 minutes after 6 Beirut time, with dawn just breaking, a truck, looking like a lot of other vehicles in the city, approached the airport on a busy main road. There was nothing in its appearance to suggest it was any different than the trucks or cars that were normally seen on and around the airport. But this one was different. At the wheel was a young man on a suicide mission. The truck carried some 2,000 pounds of explosives but there was no way our Marine Guards could know this. Their first warning that something was wrong came when the truck crashed through a series of barriers, including a chain-link fence and barbed wire entanglements. The guards opened fire, but it was too late. The truck smashed through the doors of the headquarters building in which our Marines were sleeping and instantly exploded. The four-story concrete building collapsed in a pile of rubble. More than 200 of the sleeping men were killed in that one hideous, insane attack. Many others suffered injury and are hospitalized here or in Europe. This was not the end of the horror. At almost the same instant, another vehicle on a suicide and murder mission crashed into the headquarters of the French peacekeeping force, an eight-story building, 
destroying it and killing more than 50 French soldiers. Prior to this day of horror, there had been several tragedies for our men in the multinational force. Attacks by snipers and mortar fire had taken their toll. I called bereaved parents and or widows of the victims to express on behalf of all of us our sorrow and sympathy. Sometimes there were questions, and now many of you are asking, why should our young men be dying in Lebanon? Why is Lebanon important to us? Well, it's true, Lebanon is a small country more than five and a half thousand miles from our shores on the edge of what we call the Middle East. But every president who has occupied this office in recent years has recognized that peace in the Middle East is of vital concern to our nation and indeed to our allies in Western Europe and Japan. We've been concerned because the Middle East is a powder keg. Four times in the last 30 years, the Arabs and Israelis have gone to war, and each time the world has teetered near the edge of catastrophe. The area is key to the economic and political life of the West. Its strategic importance, its energy resources, the Suez Canal, and the well-being of the nearly 200 million people living there, all are vital to us and to world peace. If that key should fall into the hands of a power or powers hostile to the free world, there would be a direct threat to the United States and to our allies. We have another reason to be involved. Since 1948, our nation has recognized and accepted a moral obligation to assure the continued existence of Israel as a nation. Israel shares our democratic values and is a formidable force an invader of the Middle East would have to reckon with. For several years, Lebanon has been torn by internal strife. Once a prosperous, peaceful nation, its government had become ineffective in controlling the militias that warred on each other. Sixteen months ago, we were watching on our TV screens the shelling and bombing of Beirut, which was being used as a fortress by PLO bands. Hundreds and hundreds of civilians were being killed and wounded in the daily battles. Syria, which makes no secret of its claim that Lebanon should be a part of a greater Syria, was occupying a large part of Lebanon. Today, Syria has become a home for 7,000 Soviet advisors and technicians who man a massive amount of Soviet weaponry, including SS-21 ground-to-ground missiles capable of reaching vital areas of Israel. A little over a year ago, hoping to build in the Camp David Accords, which had led to peace between Israel and Egypt, I proposed a peace plan for the Middle East to end the wars between the Arab states and Israel. It was based on UN Resolutions 242 and 338 and called for a fair and just solution to the Palestinian problem as well as a fair and just settlement of issues between the Arab states and Israel. Before the necessary negotiations could begin, it was essential to get all foreign forces out of Lebanon and to end the fighting there. So why are we there? Well, the answer is straightforward, to help bring peace to Lebanon and stability to the vital Middle East. To that end, the multinational force was created to help stabilize the situation in Lebanon until a government could be established and a Lebanese army mobilized to restore Lebanese sovereignty over its own soil as the foreign forces withdrew. Israel agreed to withdraw, as did Syria, but Syria then reneged on its promise. Over 10,000 Palestinians who had been bringing ruin down in Beirut, however, did leave the country. Lebanon has formed a government under the leadership of President Jamal, and that government, 
with our assistance and training, has set up its own army. In only a year's time, that army has been rebuilt. It's a good army, composed of Lebanese of all factions. As to that narrower question, what exactly is the operational mission of the Marines? The answer is to secure a piece of Beirut, to keep order in their sector, and to prevent the area from becoming a battlefield. Our Marines are not just sitting in an airport. Part of their task is to guard that airport. Because of their presence, the airport has remained operational. In addition, they patrol the surrounding area. This is their part, a limited but essential part, in the larger effort that I've described. If our Marines must be there, I'm asked, why can't we make them safer? Who committed this latest atrocity against them and why? We'll do everything we can to ensure that our men are as safe as possible. We ordered the battleship New Jersey to join our naval forces offshore. Without even firing them, the threat of its 16-inch guns silenced those who once fired down on our Marines from the hills. And they're a good part of the reason we suddenly had a ceasefire. We're doing our best to make our forces less vulnerable to those who want to snipe at them or send in future suicide missions. We have strong circumstantial evidence that the attack on the Marines was directed by terrorists who used the same method to destroy our embassy in Beirut. Those who directed this atrocity must be dealt justice, and they will be. The obvious purpose behind the sniping and now this attack was to weaken American will and force the withdrawal of U.S. and French forces from Lebanon. The clear intent of the terrorists was to eliminate our support of the Lebanese government and to destroy the ability of the Lebanese people to determine their own destiny. To answer those who ask if we're serving any purpose in being there, let me answer a question with a question. Would the terrorists have launched their suicide attacks against the multinational force if it were not doing its job? The multinational force was attacked precisely because it is doing the job it was sent to do in Beirut. It is accomplishing its mission. Let me ask those who say we should get out of Lebanon. If we were to leave Lebanon now, what message would that send to those who foment instability and terrorism? If America were to walk away from Lebanon, what chance would there be for a negotiated settlement producing a unified democratic Lebanon? If we turned our backs on Lebanon now, what would be the future of Israel? At stake is the fate of only the second Arab country to negotiate a major agreement with Israel. That's another accomplishment of this past year, the May 17th Accord signed by Lebanon and Israel. If terrorism and intimidation succeed, It'll be a devastating blow to the peace process and to Israel's search for genuine security. It won't just be Lebanon sentenced to a future of chaos. Can the United States or the free world for that matter stand by and see the Middle East incorporated into the Soviet bloc? What of Western Europe and Japan's dependence on Middle East oil for the energy to fuel their industries? The Middle East is, as I said, vital to our national security and economic well-being. Brave young men have been taken from us. Many others have been grievously wounded. Are we to tell them their sacrifice was wasted? They gave their lives in defense of our national security every bit as much as any man who ever died fighting in a war. We must not strip every ounce of meaning and purpose from their courageous sacrifice. We're a nation with global responsibilities. We're not somewhere else in the world protecting someone else's interests. We're there protecting our own. At this point, 
the president turns his attention to the situation in Grenada. Let's listen. Now, I know another part of the world is very much in our minds, a place much closer to our shores, Grenada. The island is only twice the size of the District of Columbia with a total population of about 110,000 people. Grenada and a half dozen other Caribbean islands here were until recently British colonies. They're now independent states and members of the British Commonwealth. While they respect each other's independence, they also feel a kinship with each other and think of themselves as one people. In 1979, trouble came to Grenada. Maurice Bishop, a protege of Fidel Castro, staged a military coup and overthrew the government which had been elected under the Constitution left to the people by the British. He sought the help of Cuba in building an airport, which he claimed was for tourist trade, but which looked suspiciously suitable for military aircraft, including Soviet-built long-range bombers. The six sovereign countries and one remaining colony are joined together in what they call the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States. The six became increasingly alarmed as Bishop built an army greater than all of theirs combined. Obviously, it was not purely for defense. In this last year or so, Prime Minister Bishop gave indications that he might like better relations with the United States. He even made a trip to our country and met with senior officials at the White House and the State Department. Whether he was serious or not, we'll never know. On October 12th, a small group in his militia seized him and put him under arrest. They were, if anything, more radical and more devoted to Castro's Cuba than he had been. Several days later, a crowd of citizens appeared before Bishop's home, freed him, and escorted him toward the headquarters of the military council. They were fired upon. A number, including some children, were killed and Bishop was seized. He and several members of his cabinet were subsequently executed, and a 24-hour shoot-to-kill curfew was put in effect. Grenada was without a government. It's only authority exercised by a self-proclaimed band of military men. There were then about 1,000 of our citizens on Grenada, 800 of them students in St. George's University Medical School. Concerned that they'd be harmed or held as hostages, I ordered a flotilla of ships, then on its way to Lebanon with Marines, part of our regular rotation program, to circle south on a course that would put them somewhere in the vicinity of Grenada in case there should be a need to evacuate our people. Last weekend, I was awakened in the early morning hours and told that six members of the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, joined by Jamaica and Barbados, had sent an urgent request that we join them in a military operation to restore order and democracy to, Gren to Grenada. They were proposing this action under the terms of a treaty, a mutual assistance pact that existed among them. These small, peaceful nations needed our help. Three of them don't have armies at all, and the others have very limited forces. The legitimacy of their request, plus my own concern for our citizens, dictated my decision. I believe our government has a responsibility to go to the aid of its citizens if their right to life and liberty is threatened. The nightmare of our hostages in Iran must never be repeated. We knew we had little time and that complete secrecy was vital to ensure both the safety of the young men who would undertake this mission and the Americans they were about to rescue. The Joint Chiefs worked around the clock to come up with a plan. They had little intelligence information about conditions on the island. We had to assume that several hundred Cubans working on the airport 
could be military reserves. Well, as it turned out, the number was much larger, and they were a military force. 600 of them have been taken prisoner, and we have discovered a complete base with weapons and communications equipment, which makes it clear a Cuban occupation of the island had been planned. Two hours ago, we released the first photos from Grenada. They included pictures of a warehouse of military equipment, one of three we've uncovered so far. This warehouse contained weapons and ammunition stacked almost to the ceiling, enough to supply thousands of terrorists. Grenada, we were told, was a friendly island paradise for tourism. Well, it wasn't. It was a Soviet Cuban colony being readied as a major military bastion to export terror and undermine democracy. We got there just in time. I can't say enough in praise of our military, Army Rangers and paratroopers, Navy, Marine, and Air Force personnel, those who planned a brilliant campaign and those who carried it out. Almost instantly, our military seized the two airports, secured the campus where most of our students were, and are now in the mopping up phase. It should be noted that in all the planning, a top priority was to minimize risk, to avoid casualties to our own men, and also the Grenadian forces as much as humanly possible. But there were casualties, and we all owe a debt to those who lost their lives or were wounded. They were few in number, but even one is a tragic price to pay. The events in Lebanon and Grenada, though oceans apart, are closely related. Not only has Moscow assisted and encouraged the violence in both countries, but it provides direct support through a network of surrogates and terrorists. It is no coincidence that when the thugs tried to wrest control over Grenada, there were 30 Soviet advisors and hundreds of Cuban military and paramilitary forces on the island. At the moment of our landing, we communicated with the governments of Cuba and the Soviet Union and told them we would offer shelter and security to their people on Grenada. Regrettably, Castro ordered his men to fight to the death, and some did. The others will be sent to their homelands. Today, our national security can be threatened in faraway places. It's up to all of us to be aware of the strategic importance of such places and to be able to identify them. S Sam Rayburn once said that freedom is not something a nation can work for once and win forever. He said it's like an insurance policy. Its premiums must be kept up to date. In order to keep it, we have to keep working for it and sacrificing for it just as long as we live. If we do not, our children may not know the pleasure of working to keep it, for it may not be theirs to keep. I will not ask you to pray for the dead, because they are safe in God's loving arms and beyond need of our prayers. I would like to ask you all, wherever you may be in this blessed land, to pray for these wounded young men, and to pray for the bereaved families of those who gave their lives for our freedom. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By 
podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Thank you.